Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your hosts, Dr. Dana Fang and myself, Dr. Elise Putt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Today, we are excited to welcome Dr. Simon Coz to the podcast. Dr. Coz is an internationally recognized leader in digital health, currently working as the Australian New Zealand Chief Medical Officer for Microsoft. Join us as we uncover his story. Hi, Dr. Simon Coz. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. We're so glad to have you join us today. Thanks, Elise. It's great to be here. To start us off, I thought we might be able to go back to give the listeners a bit of a rundown on what it is that you do currently for work. So I work for Microsoft and I'm the Australian New Zealand Chief Medical Officer. And what does that mean to be a Chief Medical Officer for a big tech company? Microsoft has a lot of health people in Australia and New Zealand, about 120, and many of them don't have health backgrounds. So our leadership team comprises a commercial lead, a technology lead, a partner lead, and I'm the clinical lead. So I play an advisory role internally to the Microsoft folks. I play an advisory role externally to the partner ecosystem that builds on Microsoft technology. And then I get involved a lot with customer and client-facing engagements, all the way from projects through to events and public speaking. Wow. Sounds like a lot of different hats you wear. The best thing about it is no two days are the same. So I could be speaking at an event one week or involved in an artificial intelligence MVP project at another. It works for me. Sounds amazing. I want to go back a bit to before you even started studying medicine and unpack a little bit of what actually drew you to medicine in the first place. I think it's a total lack of imagination and creativity. So I'm a second generation doctor. Both my parents were doctors and I was exposed to a lot of that growing up as a kid. Whenever I was sick, I'd go to hospital with mum and she was a radiologist and I'd sit in the dark room and play with stickers and x-rays. And by the time it came for me to choose what I wanted to do after leaving school, medicine just seemed like the default choice. And not having anything better, I thought it would be easier to transfer out of medicine into something that I was truly passionate about than have the FOMO of starting another course and going, boy, I wish I had been a doctor. (laughs) So you were thinking about your way out from the very beginning? (laughs) I wasn't really. I didn't go in with that intent, but... I had limited life experience when I graduated school at 17 and I hadn't answered that question about what was I passionate about and where did I want to spend my life and how did I want to have impact in the world? I found that later. I think that's a big question for a 17-year-old to be asking themselves. What did you think when you were going through med school, what did you think you were going to do with your medical degree? I was pretty unimpressed with undergraduate medicine. I went through the six-year course where you did three preclinical years, a lot of chemistry, biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, microbiology, very science-based and also very competitive. It was like being at school and that didn't really light me up. I did get more excited with my clinical years in years four, five and six where we actually rotated around through hospitals and different disciplines. But undergraduate, yeah, I was quite underwhelmed. I'm a communicator and a collaborator. And I found it a little bit elitist and competitive. How did you find those final years? Was there anything in clinical medicine that really stuck out to you that you thought you were going to pursue? 
I found that it was very easy to get 50% of marks in anything. So I coasted through and I knew that I was coasting. I passed medicine easily, but I certainly didn't graduate with honours or distinctions. That was never my goal. And I made sure I had a lot of fun while I was doing, while I was studying those six years. And then how long did you actually work in a typical sort of hospital clinical environment? I've been three clinical years. So every doctor in Australia graduates as a generic intern and you need to get exposed to a variety of stuff. So I rotated through emergency, general medicine, general surgery and night's cover. And once you pass your internship, you've got a breadth of experience and you can start to think about what you want to do next. My RMO one year, you get a little more choice. And so I started to go into disciplines like general practice and obstetrics and gynae and anaesthetics work. And by my senior resident medical officer year, my third year, I was running the emergency department at night with interns reporting through to me and I was supervising them. I was working in intensive care, all sorts of really interesting stuff. A lot of authority and responsibility well before I was prepared for that load. Yeah, I think a lot of people will resonate with that sentiment. How did you actually come to stepping away from those sort of roles and leaving clinical medicine? It felt like we spent six years training us to be doctors, but the moment we stepped out into the clinical coalface, you were learning on the job. It was like drinking from the fire hose. And that's good, that's exciting, and you acquire skills fast. But there is this whole concept of see one, do one, teach one. Literally, that's how quickly you're learning. And you're learning on live patients and you do make mistakes. Because I spent most of my time in the critical care disciplines of emergency, anaesthetics, intensive care, I saw mistakes happen around me all the time. And just by process of human error, through a practicing career in critical care medicine, I would be one of the people making those mistakes. Maybe it's because I had to make decisions too fast and didn't have all the information. Maybe it was time pressures. Maybe it's the fact that I was walking around in the, like a zombie because I didn't have enough sleep. But ultimately, I was going to be responsible for patient harm, not just the avoidable patients get sick and had negative outcomes, but we have medical error in our health system all the time. I think that's a real shame. It's the third biggest killer in the U.S., I think that digital technology has a role to play. So I was practicing and I was looking around me and I was seeing near misses and I was thinking, we're looking after these patients, but who's looking after us? Who's looking after the clinicians? Where are our support systems? And that started my interest in digital health. And I had no intention of leaving for good, but I did start to do some research and investigation and ultimately some study on the side in technology thinking ahead to how that might make a difference in digital health. Sounds like you were well ahead of your time, both with the focus on doctor wellbeing and digital health. Being ahead of your time is not always a good thing. <laughs> I was a, I love computers from an early age and I was a gamer on the side all the way through uni. And the systems that I was using just struck me as completely archaic and when I'm talking about 1999 and I'm already calling the systems archaic, you know that we were well behind the curve. 
So the fact that I was so technophilic and so interested in how computing might make a difference, very few people were thinking that way. And in fact, I've seen the whole digital health industry mature in recent decades, and now it's cool, but it wasn't always the case. Interesting. You touched a bit on the fact that the US healthcare system, you spent a bit of time working in the US. How did you find work over there and how did that compare to Australia? Now, that was much later in my career. I joined Microsoft in 2010 and I ran the health business here in Australia for six years. In that role, I was always looking abroad. I was thinking, where is the best in the world happening? And certainly a lot of digital innovation and investment was happening in the US. So I over-indexed on what was coming out of there. And I just wanted to have a broader view than Australia, which at that stage knew what to do, but hadn't found the investment or were behind the digital maturity curve to implement some of the more cutting edge things. And I wanted to change. So I went to the US, I was based in Seattle. I was the global chief medical officer for Microsoft. And in that role, I got to see health systems all around the world. I got to appreciate the good ones, the bad ones, and spoiler alert, there is no perfect health system. Health is a bit of a wicked problem in that the edges are so fuzzy and they butt up against social determinants of health and a whole bunch of other important and complex areas. But I did get to appreciate some systems that were working quite well and some that weren't, and I was able to bring those learnings back to Australia. An example would be the Nordics. I love the fact that as socialised medicine, they are able to pull their social services together with the health data from their healthcare system and then provide more longitudinal support and do a better job of preventative care. I love how much the US spends. Their outcomes aren't as great as many other countries. But you certainly see a lot of digital innovation there and they're right on the front foot of patient engagement and that's exciting. I love artificial intelligence and I saw great innovations come out of Israel with respect to artificial intelligence, also security from Israel because cybercrime is on the rise. So yeah, I collated a whole bunch of international learnings and that was really helpful in making me think about where health was going. It sounds amazing. It's not many people in medicine get to have such an international career. It was an absolute privilege. I'm a lifelong learner and I'm at my most engaged and my most effective when I'm right on that learning curve. But it was also quite challenging from a family perspective. I've got young kids and if I'm spending all my time flying internationally around the place, I'm not doing the other part of my responsibilities, which is as a family guy. So ultimately, I needed to take a good hard look at myself and think about how I manage those priorities. So are you based fully in Australia now or do you still do a bit of international travel for work? Both. I came back to Australia and I didn't actually come back to Australia with Microsoft. I left Microsoft and I had been talking so much about the innovators in healthcare, the startup companies that were changing the world, I got quite excited and really wanted to put my money where my mouth was and work as a startup CEO. So I left Microsoft and I came back to be the CEO of Next Practice. And that was born from a belief that I could see where health was going. I thought that we needed to do a better job of primary care, which is the front door of the health system. And I wanted to see a primary care system 
that was digitally progressive, focused on patient engagement and concierge services so that the experience was really good, and then provide all of the support functions that a GP traditionally doesn't do well or isn't a great use of their time, like marketing, bookkeeping services, some of the practice management elements, digital fit out, all of that sort of stuff. I came back and I was doing that role for a period of about 15 months, but six months in, COVID came and the whole primary care landscape changed in Australia. And as a startup CEO, we really had to pivot with the change in the external environment. So fast forward now, three and a half years, I'm back at Microsoft. I've been back here since 2020. And even though in my responsibility is Australia, New Zealand, I do some international travel. So I'm back from Germany just last month where I attended a Future World Congress, which was across industries. And I was talking about the AI revolution in healthcare. And next month I'll be off to Thailand to speak at another conference in Bangkok. Most of my responsibilities are here in Australia though. AI is something that's very topical at the moment. Is that a lot of your work at the moment or is it more of an interest area? Oh no, it is so much of my work at the moment. So here at Microsoft, we're lucky enough to have platforms that span a whole range of different technologies. Artificial intelligence is something that I've been working with for over 20 years. As a practicing clinician, we already had diagnostic AI with respect to the interpretations that come with ECGs when they spat out. But what's happened in recent times is we've moved from the time-consuming and expensive and arduous process of machine learning into the age of generative. And most people know that from November 2022 when ChatGPT burst onto the scenes. And here we are in 2023. I think this will go down as the year that artificial intelligence went mainstream in our society. And I'm spending so much time in health figuring out where generative AI has potential and then exploring that with my health customers nationally and across the Tasman to figure out how we introduce that safely and responsibly. Now, you've alluded to a few things that you do, but I still don't quite have a sense of what it actually is that you do day to day. And I suspect it changes a fair bit day to day, but could you paint a picture of an average or typical day or week in your life? What sort of jobs you're doing, what sort of people you're talking to? No, but here's why. I'll tell you how I measure my own impact and my manager looks at whether I'm discharging my responsibilities and being effective. I get managed on three simple things. The first is thought leadership. My role as the clinical lead So Microsoft is to create awareness of the potential of technology and shine a light on innovation. So in that, I do a bunch of speaking at events, large and small, write white papers, active on social media, that sort of stuff. The second is a partner ecosystem. So I mentioned that Microsoft has platform technologies. But a lot of our value is realized by partner companies who take the Microsoft componentry and turn it into solutions. So my role as an external advisor to them, I spend a bunch of time with partners, big and small, all the way from startups through to some of the largest internationals and help them understand the Australian context and do matchmaking and find 
ready homes for their capability. When I look at the partner ecosystem, I try and make sure that it's broad, that has choice capability and capacity across it. So I'm always looking for gaps and I'm always looking for new partners for the Microsoft ecosystem. And then the third thing is strategic initiatives. And strategic initiatives, I think, are the technology factors that are changing our health system. So I've mentioned artificial intelligence, but then there's also the consumer health revolution and patient engagement. There's virtual care and telehealth and remote monitoring services and so forth. So I try and balance my time across those three silos of thought leadership, partner capability, and then strategic projects. Sounds like a far cry from everything that you've learned in med school, but I'm sure a lot of it came across with medicine teaching you a lot of transferable skills. So I see what medicine teaches you. It teaches you a tolerance of ambiguity and the confidence to back yourself. You might not be the best person at doing it, but you're the person right there. So I certainly walked out of medicine into the world of technology and business with confidence and belief, but I've learned so much of it on the job from great people that I work alongside. And for me, that's the most exciting thing. I will never be the best at everything in the world, but I can work with the best to do amazing things. But I've also had to do some remedial education. So I mentioned that I retrained in software engineering and so I formally learned to code. I formally went through a Master of Business Administration, so I got my MBA. And then I've also gone and I've done my CHIA, which is a health industry-specific, digital health-specific qualification. So I'm always looking to balance on-the-job practical learning with the formal accreditation and recognition so that I've got the right skills to do my job. I think there's a lot of options around to learn to code nowadays, but if anyone's listening and wanted to follow in similar footsteps, do you have any advice for them on learning to code or any of those other qualifications that you sought out? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is if you're like me and you're a medical doctor interested in digital health, the way you're going to create impact is probably not by coding yourself. So think about it. And for me, I'm a translator. I bring together the technologists, the clinical people and the business people, and that's how I affect change. So I'm not actually writing code today, but it was interesting and a bit indulgent. That's going to be different if you're a data scientist. The world just does not have enough data scientists. And by the same token, the world doesn't have enough cybersecurity professionals. So there's lots of opportunity for employment in the digital health sector. But there's also been a generational shift in coding and digital skills. So once upon a time, it was those hardcore, what I call pro-code skills, being able to code in C++, Ruby, Python, all of those hardcore programming languages. In more recent years, we've come to low-code capabilities, and that's more reusable concepts, drag-and-drop, visual design. And I think going forward into the future, generative, which can write code, generative artificial intelligence is going to make a big difference. So I'm already seeing jobs open for prompt engineers. And that's a new role that's just been created. And I think going forward, we're going to see increasingly see jobs that don't exist today 
that are going to be important to how we create the technology capabilities for our digital system. It sounds like you really, throughout your career, just followed interests rather than necessarily going after specific career milestones. Is that fair to say, or do you think that you've done a bit of both? Yeah, so that's absolutely correct. If you were blessed with knowing where you were going to end up at the end of your career, you could be very deterministic about how you got there and probably get there much faster than me. People have always said to me, follow your heart and focus on the things that you're good at. But I've done the opposite. Um, I've identified weaknesses and areas for development, and then I've invested in them. And that was well before I started as a doctor. I was scared of heights once upon a time, so I became a springboard capability diver. I was scared of public speaking, so that's what I do for a job these days. And I've figured out areas that, hey, I'm not really good at that. I'm going to give it a go. So if I'm frank and honest, when I became a startup CEO, that was a skill that I wanted to try on and see how whether or not that was something that I was good at, I enjoyed, all the rest of it. What I realised is general management is a function that many people are so much better at than me. But what I can do uniquely is I can be a clinical subject matter expert and I think I perform best when I'm supported by team members at a large organisation, ideally in the private and commercial sector, making changes into health. So I'm exactly where I want to be at the moment. When I look back on it, I think of three overlapping circles at Creative Then. The first is the skills and experience you've got. The second is the role that you have, the title, and the third is the organisation. And I think when you've got the right skills and experience and you're in the right role at the right organisation, that's when you can affect real change. You've certainly come a very long way from someone who was afraid of public speaking. It wasn't a glamorous start, but these days I've learned from the best and I've had a lot of practice. So I take real satisfaction out of delivering engaging, humorous, inspiring presentations and often the research to do that keeps me motivated too. It sounds like you've had an extremely fulfilling and rewarding career. I imagine it wasn't easy stepping away from the clinical role. Is there anything that you do miss from that work or any regrets you have about something you might have pursued along the clinical lines? None at all. So I'll tell you the things that I love best about being a doctor. I love working with high-caliber people on something that mattered and made a difference. And when I left medicine and I moved into digital health, I was still working with high-caliber people on things that mattered. So at the end of the day, when I go to sleep, that's job satisfaction for me. Did I personally learn and grow? And did I contribute to something that improves the healthcare system, which I'm passionate about? Ironically, I mentioned I've got three clinical years and then I've spent more than 20 years in digital health. I still think of myself as a doctor rather than a technologist, but I guess I am more of a technologist than I am a doctor. The reason I don't affiliate with being a technologist is because I've always worked in a digital health capacity, interfacing with the medical community, the clinical community, understanding health and the challenges at the coalface and then translating that back into the capability 
that I know my organization's got, or if my organization doesn't have it, figuring out who might be able to lean in and make a difference. And being a doctor is part of the unique skill that you bring to those other roles as well. I guess as doctors, we're often used to working around exclusively healthcare professionals. So we're not seeing that skill as unique as it probably is in other environments. Yeah, look, the way we train doctors and probably other clinicians as well is very task-oriented and geared at the professional discipline of delivering patient care or the critical evaluation process of the health-related research to figure out what the right thing to do is. That means that we're woefully prepared for some of the other things that are really important in society. Digital health and business skills are two things that aren't taught to me and aren't taught to doctors, yet many of them actually go out into private practice and they need to set up their own clinics, run a business, outfit it with technology. I think that's probably a miss and we could do better. For me, I had to get those skills to be effective in my digital health role. And fortunately for me, I enjoy learning and I'll never stop. But that was something that I had to pay some remedial attention to. Very interesting. Now, to ask you something completely different, if you were to work in a field that wasn't related to healthcare or technology, what would your dream job be? That is a crazy question. Look, one of the things I really enjoy doing is computer gaming. And as much as I enjoy playing games, I like the whole novel user interface experience, innovative type side of it. So there was a time where I was at a career crossroads and I looked at potentially taking a job at Blizzard. I had no transferable skills other than I worked at a tech company. It probably would have been a poor fit, but I would have been interested in that. Once upon a time, and I'm rusty here, I was very interested in cooking and food and the rest of it. I could have taken that down a direction that would have been super indulgent, probably wouldn't have been a great career move, but I do enjoy food and cooking and I've grown to love travel over time. So if I didn't have to work, I would love to immerse myself in foreign cultures, foods, languages, all of that sort of stuff. Amazing. Those are three very different careers or ideas, but I can see how they can all fit into the sort of things that you describe about your current life as well. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was amazing to chat to you. I'm sure our listeners will find a lot of the things you said very inspiring. Is there any last words you've got that you wanted to leave our listeners with? Just that over the time that I commenced my journey in digital health, it was really like pulling teeth and telling people about what was possible and illustrating the potential. I think we're finally recognising as we progress down a route of digital society. I think we're figuring out how technology is not only important, but essential to delivering great patient care and outcomes. And I think we're actually in the golden era of digital health right now. So a lot of people I speak to, whether they're clinicians or affiliated with the health industry, are interested in this revolution that's going on. I think the health industry has a soul and has meaning. And when you make a difference here, you impact people's lives in a very fundamental and powerful way. So for any people who are interested in learning more about digital health, 
There are some great events out there. There are some great communities out there. Find someone who's active, have a conversation with them. Generally, we're open to sharing our experiences and our insight and learn more about this fantastic space because it's only going to get bigger from here. Sounds all very exciting. Thank you very much, Dr. Coz. Lovely to speak to you, Elise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging 